0: Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us reveal tote bags like our t-shirts they're simple and elegant dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type so here's what you got to do text the word review to 474747 and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last again text the word review to 474747 you can text stop at any time and standard rates apply and when you leave the review if you want to tell them that Al Letson is your all-time favorite host i mean i'm not i'm not going to be mad at that thank you so much for your review on apple podcasts it makes a huge difference from the center for investigative reporting and prx this is reveal i'm al letson we're starting this week's show on the brink
1: Should I be nervous here at the edge?
0: That's Reveal reporter Patrick Michaels. He's standing on the edge of a giant sand pit in the Mississippi River Valley.
2: I wouldn't get within three foot of it.
0: (laughs) Patrick's guide with easy laugh is Dan Lundberg, a local farmer. Also standing on the sandy rim is Reveal's Catherine Miskowski.
3: What happens if you fall in and be hard to get out?
2: Probably. (laughs) Sand isn't easy walking (laughs)
3: in.
0: The trench in front of them is about 30 feet deep. And it's about to get deeper. Our reporters are surrounded by some of the most valuable farmland in Illinois enormous fields of corn and soybeans. But the land wouldn't be worth nearly as much without all this sand. This is a sand site. We had about three or four different sand sites. Waiting next to the trench is a huge yellow machine called a Traco. It has a single long arm with a scoop on the end. And here comes a dump truck. <laughs>
3: You think we're going to see some action here? Oh, yeah. He's going to fell it. All right.
0: All that sand is headed to a wall that stretches more than 50 miles along the river.
2: And they take it down there and back up the side of the levee and dump it. And then we've got dozers over there, too, that's leveling it out.
0: The levee they're working on is one of the longest in the country. The sand will make it stronger, better able to resist the mighty Mississippi, Without that wall, this land would be a swamp.
3: We wouldn't really associate this with farming, but it's related. <laughs>
0: it's related because it
2: keeps the water
3: out. <laughs>
0: Keeping the water out. That's what we're talking about today. Who gets flooded and who gets protected. Last year's storms caused more than $200 billion in damage, more than any year before. Thanks to climate change, a lot more rain has been falling on the country, especially in the Midwest, where that water pours into the Mississippi River. So, with our partners at the nonprofit newsroom ProPublica, we've been looking at the levees that protect us from floods. Are they making us safer or not? Reveals Patrick Michaels and Catherine Miskowski went to the Mississippi to get their feet wet.
1: The farmland here is carved out of the Mississippi floodplain. That's the low-lying land beside the river. When we visited Dan this spring, the Mississippi was running high, but the levee was easily holding it back. 25 years ago was the last time the river touched this land.
2: There used to be about four acres of timber in there, and I mean big trees. There was cottonwoods and everything. It killed every tree in it.
1: It really remade this landscape too. Just...
2: Well, that's it. Anybody who came down here in the
1: 493, they wouldn't recognize it now. The great floods of
4: 1993 are beginning to look like a war zone.
1: That's Tom Brokaw reporting for NBC Nightly News.
4: And President Clinton tours the devastated areas.
1: Dan shows us a scrapbook from that time. All the newspaper clipping out of the papers. The first page of your scrapbook, what does it say at the top? It was
2: only the beginning. (laughs)
1: Little
2: little did we know.
3: (laughs) That year, the flooding in the Midwest started in the spring and lasted clear into the fall. The whole region was locked in an epic flood fight, and the water was winning.
2: Along the Mississippi, the high waters have been putting a very heavy strain on levees day after day, week after week. And today, some of them broke under the heavy pressure.
3: Local residents defended the levees that protected their homes and land. Dan was a part of it. His farm is in the Snye Levee District, the agency responsible for maintaining the levees in several communities. And it's where the fight went on for weeks, with the water cresting and receding. Throughout the Midwest, hundreds of levees were failing. And finally, the SNI's number was up.
2: The biggest break was near Quincy, Illinois, where the SNI levee opened up, forcing rapid evacuations in two communities. When the break occurred, four workers trying to reinforce it had to climb trees to avoid being swept away. That's where it broke in 93.
1: Dan's showing us where the levee failed. When Dan heard the bad news, he knew exactly what it meant for him and his three brothers and parents who all lived in the area.
2: It's just like a lump in your throat because you know what's going to happen.
3: And then how long does it take?
2: It took about four days for this bottom of those 44,000
1: acres to fill up. The floodplain where Dan lived and farmed was like this bowl The levees that were still holding were like the rim, and the floodwaters swamped everything inside. Where there had been fields, now there were waves.
2: When you put all that water out here, I'll tell you, it's just like a big ocean.
1: And just like parts of the ocean, it was full of trash. The water had washed out people's homes and farms, and whatever wasn't tied down, floated away.
2: You couldn't believe all the stuff that floated in there. There was firewood, there was sewing machines, washers and dryers, there was gas tanks, there was cans and bottles. And you name it, it was there.
1: Dan's house flooded, and so did his parents and three brothers' places. He shows us some photos. All these photos of the, the wreckage of your, your house here, but there's this photo of the two of you, with the caption underneath it that says, We can still find happiness. <laughs> I think she (laughs) lied.
2: Now, I'll tell you, my wife and I, we've had a good marriage.
3: Dan's marriage survived the deluge, as did his family. But recovery was a long slog back.
2: To survive financially,
3: it probably took me 10 years just to get back to where I was at. The flood was a blow to the whole region. It caused about $15 billion of damage across the Midwest. 50 people lost their lives. As for Dan, the experience literally whittled him down.
1: I mean, he must have been so exhausted. I lost.
3: i grant
2: you, I'm overweight now, but I went back to my Army weight. Uh, right now, I'm right at 300. I went back to 214.
3: Just from, like, moving sandbag, like you're just working And so
2: stress. Hard. A lot of it was stress. Back then, I was 45 years old. I mean, I can handle it. I, I couldn't do that today. There's no way. I know, I know my dad, after he said, I worked all my life for this, and he said it's all... Nothing now.
3: This land hasn't flooded since then, and Dan wants to keep it that way. He's the president of the Snye Levy District. He'll do almost anything to keep it from being
1: breached. But some people feel he's going too far. A couple of days after we met Dan in Illinois, we're on the other side of the river in Missouri, bumping down a gravel road in our rental car. It's like a grain elevator. We're going to meet a woman who has a lot in common with Dan. First of all, both of them live way out in the country. After getting lost, we finally find it a farmhouse on a hill with a garden of irises outside. All right,
3: this dog looks mad. You can get out first. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. Google
1: took us way down the road and, uh, Anyway, we're very late, so... Oh,
5: that's okay. Well, this is quite a place, as you can see.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's Nancy Guyton. She's a welcoming host, even though we've kept her waiting more than half an hour. But she has these determined, sharp eyes that tell you instantly she's not someone you want to mess with. She and Dan are both in their 70s. They both live on farms that have been in their families for generations.
5: Now, that's my son. He's spraying for bugs.
1: Like Dan, Nancy drives us around to tour the fields.
5: Um, This is corn. This is corn. They're down planting beans.
3: And her fields, they filled up with water in the Great Flood, too.
5: In 1993, we started flooding on July 4th.
3: Just like Dan, she took a big hit. She lost crops and got wiped out. I
5: came down here and cleaned out this house. Snakes in the
3: cabinet, everything. And Nancy remembers some absurd moments, too.
5: I was standing out here just resting a few minutes, and Van drove up, and it was FEMA. And they gave me a white bucket, some CLR, a mop, and a six-pack of Mountain Dew.
3: I laughed. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> Wait, did you drink it, the Mountain Dew? I mean, No, I don't drink that stuff. <laughs> but for all Dan and Nancy have in common, when it comes to preventing flooding, there's a raging river between them. Driving around, she shows us why.
5: I might be able to get you down to bush landing here.
3: But we don't get very far. There you go. Whoa. There we go. Holy cow. Yeah. I thought we'd see it. All right. If we keep driving, we'd be in the water. Yeah, so
5: we're not going to, but that road is underwater. There you go.
1: Nancy wants to take us to the riverbank, but we can't get there because the river is coming to us. Over the years, she says, this has been happening more and more often.
5: We dodge water a lot down here. It went from infrequent to frequent.
1: She thinks that's because Dan and other people across the river have been raising their levees for extra protection.
5: And especially since 2008, you see a very definite change. The river doesn't have anywhere to go.
1: She says that the snye levee is overbuilt and that it should be lowered to protect the families and farms over here on the Missouri side of the river.
5: When you farm along the river, you're going to experience floods. And if you can't handle that, then sell your land and move to higher ground. But don't ask your neighbors to flood so you can live off the fat of the land. That, that's just not fair.
1: Back in Illinois, Dan's not buying it.
2: We got people below us. I mean, I'm not gonna mention any names, but I'll tell you, they're trying to stir it all up.
1: He says that maybe the people on the Missouri side, Nancy's side, should invest more in flood protection instead of blaming their neighbors across the way and upstream.
2: I'm not saying that people are smarter here, but I mean, they've got, I think they've got some vision that maybe they don't have in the Missouri bottom.
3: And while there are some levees around Nancy's land, they're nowhere near as high as the Sny. Nancy thinks they're high enough and that Dan should lower his. He has no intention of doing
1: that. Which puts Dan and Nancy in kind of an arms race, not of guns and tanks, but of dirt and sand.
0: So, who has the high ground in this levee war? Should they build higher levees on Nancy's side of the river, or are the levees on Dan's side of the river causing problems because they're too high already? We wanted to look at the science behind levees, so we called in Lisa Song from ProPublica. They're our partners on today's show. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Al. Lisa is a Pulitzer Prize-winning science and environmental reporter. She's going to break it down for us. So, okay, Lisa, I'm ready for my science lesson. I should warn you, science is not my thing, so please go slow.
6: Okay. So we wanted to show how levees actually impact rivers and flooding. The best way that we could think of was actually to build a miniature model of a river and put real water through it and see what happens. We hired these scientists at the University of Minnesota to build us a model.
0: Now we're seeing a time-lapse video of them creating the river. Back in the day, my dad and I used to make trains, uh, and this kind of looks like the train settings that we would make.
6: Yeah, that is the general idea. It, it is sort of similar to a giant model train set. It's a box about 10 feet by 13 feet, and then they built a river channel in there. They piped real water through it, and we uh, decided to film what would happen if we would actually put levees on the river.
0: Okay, so now the water is going through the channel, Uh, and I'm beginning to see it kind of seeping out as more water comes in.
6: Right, and this is what happens on a natural river with no levees. As soon as the water gets high enough, the river floods, and everything on the floodplain gets swamped.
0: Okay, so now what
6: happens if you start building levees? So then we ran the model again. The scientists built a levee on either side of the river. Okay, so
0: now the same amount of water is coming down the channel, and the water is is for the most part staying in the river it's not floating out
6: right cuz we now have levees along both sides of this river and the levees are basically the same height so both sides of the river are basically equally protected so the the same amount of water that we had in the first video where it was flooding the floodplain now when you send that same amount of water down the river it's not flooding the floodplain at a certain point though when the flood gets high enough it will be big enough to go over both of the levees, and that's when you can still get flooding. But it's a sort of equal opportunity disaster for both sides.
0: So in the third movie, we see the exact same model, but now on one side of the levee, they're actually adding more height to it.
6: In a situation like that, when it starts to flood, the side with the higher levee stays dry while the side with the lower levee is going to flood first. And you actually have the side with the higher levee pushing extra water onto the side with the lower levees. And this is basically what's happening with Dan's community and Nancy's community. The side of the river behind Dan's levee, they are better protected because they have built their levees higher. And those people on the other side of the river where Nancy lives... Some of those communities have lower levies, and some have actually no levies at all. So they are at a disadvantage.
0: So basically, Nancy has a point. Yes. Okay, so Lisa, you're going to come back and talk to us later on in the show about some solutions, right? Yes, I'll be back. Okay, well, we'll talk to you then. Lisa Song is a Pulitzer Prize-winning science and environmental reporter with ProPublica. So who can sort out Dan and Nancy's feud?
1: We can't just keep escalating the levy wars.
0: When we come back, we meet the people who are supposed to keep the peace. You're listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX.
7: Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear, it's not polite to bring up religion. But we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the long-standing problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch Season 2 wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home, with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
0: From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today, with our partners at ProPublica, we've been talking about farmers who are neighbors with a river running between them, neighbors who are locked in a modern day war over levees.
2: We've got people below us. I mean, I'm not going to mention any names, but I'll tell you, they're trying to stir it all up.
5: That's just not fair. They're not being reasonable. Mm-hmm.
0: Nancy Guyton thinks the levy protecting Dan Lundberg's property is too high. Dan thinks his levy is just fine, thanks. And we just heard what the science says. When the levees on one side of the river are higher than the other, it causes flooding across the way. But scientists don't decide who gets flooded. Politicians do. So it reveals Patrick Michaels and Katherine Miskowski went to a conference in St. Louis where the people who were making those decisions were all in one room. They take it from here.
1: If you've ever wondered what a meeting of Midwestern water policy experts looks like, I'll paint you a picture. We're in a large windowless conference room in the basement of a Hampton Inn in downtown St. Louis. State and federal officials face each other around a U-shaped set of tables. There are PowerPoint presentations, flood inundation maps, and thankfully free coffee in the back. There's this one moment that really sets the tone. It's during a break between powerpoints. One guy at the table jokes that he needs a little technical assistance, maybe from the Army Corps of Engineers and FEMA, about his hotel room.
8: A pipe broke and
2: my room flooded, so I might. Do <laughs> <up laughs> you have insurance?
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
4: what preventative measure did you take? Was everything up on the bed?
3: The people here are in charge of river policy for five states along the Upper Mississippi, including Illinois and Missouri. They've been working for years to create a plan to manage flooding that everyone can agree on. But so far, there's no plan, no agreement. For now, there are only studies.
4: Many of you have been long for the
2: ride for the last year and a half that we've been uh, working on this long-awaited, much-anticipated hydraulic
4: model.
1: That's Scott Whitney, a flood risk manager for the Army Corps of Engineers who's based in Illinois. After his presentation, I asked Scott, is the SNI levy that protects Dan Lundberg's side of the Mississippi really higher than it's supposed to be? A lot of different versions of the truth out there. <laughs> I mean, are the numbers right still that they are, in fact, overbuilt from where they were oh, authorized?
3: The no,
2: we've, we've known that, you know, more than a decade. We've been trying to work with our, our partners.
1: In other words, the Army Corps studied the levy and agreed with Nancy. They took measurements that proved the sni had been raised. And in 2015, the Corps sent a letter telling the people who run the district to lower the levy. Dan and the other SNI commissioners refused. They say that ever since Hurricane Katrina, the Corps has been trying to overregulate them. And Dan says the Corps' numbers were wrong. But the Corps came up with more evidence. This year, they put together a computer model that showed that if the 1993 flood happened today, flooding at Nancy's would be worse because the SNI and six other nearby levees are too high.
3: So the Army Corps has been telling the SNI to take their levee down a notch for years. But they're not exactly out there with bulldozers and shovels tearing it down. It's not as, as easy because we don't have an enforcement arm. We don't have uh, the ability to go out and you know, bring the police.
2: The states own the responsibility for enforcement in the floodplain, floodplain rules and regulations.
3: But what happens when the river is the state line? Remember, Dan's in Illinois and Nancy's in Missouri. Missouri can't force Dan to lower his levy in Illinois. Illinois could do something about it, but how likely is that?
1: I took a little road trip to find out. So I'm in Springfield, Illinois, in the long shadow of the tall dome of the state capitol. I was going to see a Democratic state senator. Hi. Hi. I'm senator Cameron's office. Oh, right around the corner here, you want to talk to Bob. Thank you. Senator Dave Kaler has been trying to de-escalate this cross-state conflict. We can't just keep escalating the levy wars. He put forward a bill to try to rein in levy districts in his own state, but... We really couldn't come together on this at all. For officials in Illinois, there's just not much incentive to bring their levies down. The people in Missouri can complain all they want to. It doesn't cost me a vote. See, and that's the problem, is that we all protect our own parochial interests. Uh, We have to look at this in a uh, much more global way. For the record, the state of Illinois did send a notice of violation to the SNI levy district in 2015, telling them that their levy was too high. So, another letter from another agency, but nothing changes. So, I asked him, what else can the state do? Should the state start filing lawsuits to bring levy districts in line? Those are always very political. And, uh, you you know, that's why we're trying to uh, come up with a plan that hopefully uh, makes some sense out of this. Uh, In other words, don't hold your breath, Nancy.
3: Nancy isn't holding her breath, but she's not giving up either. Make these people take those levies back to authorized height. She's convinced that there's one more government agency that could actually do something here. FEMA can do it.
5: FEMA can lower the
3: boom, and the boom needs to be lowered. FEMA, it turns out, also sent a letter warning the SNI. But FEMA has something that the other agencies don't, something that Dan and the SNI-Levy District really care about, a flood insurance subsidy program. But to be eligible for it, your levy has to follow all state and federal laws. Farmers like Dan are getting the insurance, but they're breaking the rules. So why hasn't FEMA pulled the insurance from people who are violating the law? We spent months trying to arrange an interview.
4: You have reached the regional office of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. If you are calling about a disaster, please press 1.
3: But in the end, the agency declined to talk with us.
1: Okay, so basically, none of the state and federal regulators has been willing to lower the boom. That leaves just a couple more rungs up the ladder. That's Congress and, ultimately, the president. And there, in Washington, is where this levy war has really heated up. I go to Washington, D.C. about twice a year. That's Dan again. He's part of a lobbying group that spent almost a quarter million dollars for less regulation and more local control. It's a low-profile campaign funded by levy districts from all over the country. The levy districts get their money by taxing landowners. So they're spending public money to get the Army Corps out of their business. They've even hired professional lobbyists to help. How do you think the standoff is going to end? Uh,
2: I guess it, it, all, it all depends on whether Trump gets back in or not. <laughs> He's eliminated a lot of regulations that were just in my opinion, were stupidity.
1: <laughs> Nancy's also been pleading her case to lawmakers, but on a much smaller scale. When she wants to go to Washington, D.C., or do a study about the river, she's paying out of her own pocket.
5: I stopped counting just over $26,000 of my own money. I'm up to twenty-eight, twenty-nine. dollars
1: Nancy doesn't have a levy district behind her. She has just a small association, Neighbors of the Mississippi.
3: Nancy wants people like Dan to follow the rules, but Dan's group wants fewer rules. And Nancy's not just worried about the way things are now, she's worried about where things could go. She's seen a proposal, a map, where her farm would be sacrificed to floodwaters so that other communities would be saved. She told us about it while she drove us around.
1: And that's the potential floodway they're talking about. Yeah, that, right
5: that's here. what they're saying. We want you, Hicks, to give us everything you have so we can continue to prosper while you suffer. That's the name of their game, and it's a very cruel game.
0: Nancy's fear isn't so far-fetched. The Army Corps makes calculations about which land can be given up to the river to protect more valuable property, and it's already got a few places set aside to do just that. They were created almost 100 years ago. In the summer of 1926, heavy rains drenched the Midwest, and it kept on raining into 1927. 1927. Now, back then, there were levees on the Mississippi, but they couldn't hold the river this time.
4: In trouble, sing, play,
9: in the
4: at night.
0: It was the worst flood ever on the Mississippi. Levees broke in 145 places, and seven states flooded. More than half a million people lost their homes. Hundreds of people died, some estimate over a thousand. Flooding across the country was so epic, people wrote songs about it like blues singer Bessie Smith.
9: There's thousands of people, ain't got no place to go.
0: And Americans demanded action. That's why the Army Corps added something new, floodways, Relief valves for the river. Congress paid landowners for the right to flood their fields when the Mississippi got too high. Here's Patrick and Catherine again.
1: One of these places was a stretch of timberland in southeast Missouri. Just 10 years later, the Mississippi was running high, and the Corps flooded it. Decades passed, and the Corps didn't have to use the floodway again until...
7: In southeast Missouri, the water is rising so fast, residents have been told not to bother with sandbags.
1: It's around Easter 2011, when the Mississippi River starts creeping up its banks again. Up around Dan and Nancy's farms, it's a pretty big flood. But 200 miles downriver, the water is running dangerously high. Millions of acres of farmland are at risk, along with the city of Cairo, Illinois. The governor of Missouri gave a warning.
2: We're talking about record heights of that Mississippi, Missouri, where they come together at the Ohio there. Uh, There's a lot of water and a lot of action.
3: The water keeps rising, but the core is ready. They have that floodway, 130,000 acres, ready to go. All they need to do is blow up a levee that's in front of it.
1: Missouri officials don't want land in their state to get washed away, so they sue to stop the Corps. Then Illinois officials go to court arguing the Corps should blow the levee. The Corps waits as long as it can, but when the river tops 60 feet and then 61, officials finally give the signal. From a tanker out on the water, the Corps pumps liquid explosive into pipes in the levee.
7: There it is. Did you see it? It just happened.
1: A wave of water rushes through the breach. The river goes down, and Cairo is saved. The decision is controversial, but basically the plan works. Here's how a Corps official named Karen Durham-Aguilera explains it on C-SPAN.
5: Under what law is the Army Corps authorized to blow up a levee? Well,
0: let's
3: step back for a second. You know, we we say blow up a levee, but what we're really doing is operating a floodway as a design. It's a floodway. This is the solution that smart river policymakers like. Instead of just walling off the river, giving the water somewhere to go, the Army Corps declared victory. But there was a town full of people who weren't celebrating. See, the floodway wasn't just farmland. There was a small town of African-American farmers right in
9: the middle of it. I know my grandson was very hurt by it. He couldn't understand why they would put that much water on us. Deborah Robinson Tarver lived
3: in the town called Pinhook, she was also the mayor, and she says that she and her neighbors were completely cut out of the decision to open the floodway. The Army Corps didn't consult them. Even the state of Missouri didn't mention the town of Pinhook when it sued the Army Corps to prevent the levee from being blown. Instead, the lawsuit focused on the big farms in the floodway. And Deborah, the mayor, said no one called her about evacuating.
9: The lady that works behind me, she said that she saw it on the Facebook, that it was— to be in a mandatory evacuation. So I immediately started calling uh, emergency management to see, you know, what's going on.
3: Some Pinhook residents were elderly, in wheelchairs. Deborah wanted to know if she needed to get her people out of there. The response she got?
9: Well, just stand down. They just getting excited. Nothing's gonna happen. But
3: Deborah didn't believe that and got her people out. Days later, The town was under 10 feet of brown river water, and they had no place to live.
1: How does a town wind up in the middle of a floodway? Deborah's dad, Jim Robinson, was there when it happened. It was early in the 1940s. He told the story to a traveling state historian 20 years ago.
8: This is what you would call virgin land. The three big timber giants had cut all of the big virgin timber, all of the good timber, and sold it all, So There was no immediate use for the land anymore. That's why it sold so cheaply.
1: Jim was nine years old when his dad and four other Black families bought 80 acres in the floodway. Jim's dad was a sharecropper and a tenant farmer. He'd moved around the South, looking for a place with more opportunity and less racism. In most places, no white landowners would sell but the timber companies that owned this floodway said they would.
8: That's the beginning of this
1: Pinhook area. The farmers cleared the land by hand, built homes and a church, a school and a store. Along with the threat that the government might flood them, there was another risk they faced from the river, a small gap in the levee that sometimes made the land flood. Every now and then, a house would need to be rebuilt. But it was all part of life in Pinhook. As the town grew, they tried to convince the government to plug that gap.
8: My dad worked until his death trying to uh, get the people or the high-ups to see how bad we needed flood control down in this area. But they just can't see it happening. And I always kind of say, we got too many minorities, they, they, they'd end up helping. They just won't do it.
1: After all, the Corps had decided this land was supposed to flood.
8: I just pray that I could live to see the day
1: when
8: that livish plug goes. To know that my family would be protected.
1: Jim Robinson died in 2004. Seven years later, Pinhook was in ruins. A few months ago, I went to see what's left of the town. I jumped in a station wagon with a couple of professors, Todd Lawrence and Elaine Lawless. They've just written a book about Pinhook.
5: Cool on where you're going, Todd? Yep. This
9: is the
1: exit here. I sort of know what I'm doing. (laughs) Elaine had never heard of Pinhook until she read a story about how it was destroyed.
9: Of course, it was
5: a deal with the devil because it was the only land that was available to African-Americans to buy and own. At the same time, they said, but you realize it's in this billway.
1: Todd is a former student of hers. He was drawn to Pinhook's history because his family comes from another African-American farm town in Missouri. For seven years, Todd and Elaine have been asking people from Pinhook to tell their story, the one the Army Corps left out of its official record. For Pinhook people especially, it's almost like they never existed, and they don't exist, you know. And that's the thing that we've come
9: to see over the years that's,
1: you know, really problematic about this whole thing. After a few more miles bouncing along a gravel road, we turn right and I get my first look at the town.
9: This would have been their houses all here. This is actually a street, and there were houses well, this here. this looks
5: worse every year. I mean, if you drove by this, you would not know that was a town, would you?
1: Tall weeds are growing through cracks in a concrete foundation. This was the house that Jim Robinson built for his wife Aretha. Down the road, we find what's left of the Old Baptist Church. Someone burned it down after the flood which happened to a lot of the houses that were
9: left out here after everyone moved away. Arsonists came out here, they stripped them of copper and they burned the
1: houses down. You know, they stripped it of everything that was valuable. After their town was obliterated, people had to figure things out for themselves. Deborah, the mayor, says they got less help because they lived inside a floodway. So they scattered. Some people stayed with family, some moved away entirely. But they still consider themselves a community.
9: Always good to come on back home.
8: Yep, no place <laughs> back home. Still the same place. Ain't much to see, but we set it on the ground. <laughs>
1: this is Memorial Day weekend, but out here, it's Pinhook Day, the annual homecoming. Dozens of people who used to live in Pinhook or who spent their summers here as kids are coming back. People drive up, park next to the field, unload their coolers. What's up, bro? Burt Robinson, he's the son of Jim and Aretha Robinson, is frying catfish and chicken in big pots of oil.
4: Yeah, it's all right.
8: Our mama, my mama makes the best fish season you ever tasted.
1: One guy takes kids for a tour on a four-wheeler, telling them about how things used to be. And there's a small crowd gathering around a poster with photos of the flood.
4: Oh, look at that water. <laughs> That's our house right there, it?
1: Yeah. yeah. And Deborah Robinson Tarver, the mayor of what's left of Pinhook, who we met earlier, is running around welcoming people.
9: I, I seen somebody else coming up. Hey, how you doing?
1: After the town was wiped out, Deborah took the lead trying to get answers from the Army Corps and help from FEMA.
9: I felt in my heart that what they did was wrong. Okay, I felt that they should have stepped up to the plate and said, okay, we did this, we stopped for what we've done, you know, um, we're going to come back and we'll make amends for what has happened. That didn't happen. It was like I knew what I had to do, and that's fight for what we needed. And that was a roof over our heads. We didn't want no more than what we had, and they did not provide us a place to go. They did not provide us with things we
1: needed. Instead, they got help from a crew of Mennonite volunteers, led by this guy, who's also here today.
2: Jeff Kohler, uh, Mennonite Disaster Service, um, regional operations coordinator.
1: After the flood, Deborah and the others couldn't rebuild their homes in Pinhook. But FEMA did offer some money to rebuild somewhere else. Jeff's group volunteered to provide the labor, but they needed land.
2: The original intention was to try to buy 20 or 30 acres somewhere and develop a Pinhook community. But that was not to be no one wanted to sell the land to them. Um, how' was how that? I need to be very cautious um, about that. There, I think, um, through Todd and Elaine's work, they've identified an element of racial bias that affected whether landowners would sell to the folks of
1: Penhook.: Whenever Deborah found some land, there was always a problem. Something wrong with the zoning or the utilities or the land cost more than FEMA would pay. And at least once, when everything else lined up right, a seller backed out after hearing what Deborah had planned. She says FEMA let her know that the clock was ticking.
9: They say, well, we'll give you so long to um, try to come over some land. If you don't get it by X amount of time, then we're going to go on and not help, just move on to something
1: else. In the end, they couldn't get enough land to start a new town for everyone. Instead, Deborah found seven parcels on the same street in a town about 30 miles away. In April, after seven years without a home, she and just six others from Pinhook moved into their new houses.
9: Yes, you have to come by. I'm going to check you out. I finally got a bed. <laughs>
1: Some Pinhook folks are neighbors again, but in someone else's city. And Pinhook won't ever be anywhere but right here. A sign planted in the ground nearby says Pinhook, reclaimed 2017. They haven't missed a homecoming since the flood, but for years they held it in another town. Last year was the first time that Pinhook Day was back in Pinhook. Why was it? Was it because it was too hard to get everyone, like people couldn't be back here?
9: We had to heal. There there had to be some healing going on. And even though how much you pray every time we turn that corner right, when we get up there on the hill, the tears, it was home. You remember that, I mean, you remember you can't go back. It's hard to go back somewhere you've been kicked out of.
0: Pinhook is gone. But now, their former neighbors, the big farmers in the floodway, have a voice at the highest levels of the Army Corps. Just like Jim Robinson wanted decades ago, they'd like to see the gap in the levee close to keep their land dry. One of them is a farmer and businessman named R.D. James. In 2017, the Trump administration appointed him to lead the Army Corps' civil works projects. Is there a better way? Some places are making peace with the river, even when it floods. When we come back, Mark Twain's hometown. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Today, we've been talking about levies. And how they can pit neighbors against each other in a kind of levee arms race. Our partners at ProPublica hired scientists to build a miniature model of a river. They put water through it to see how levees affect flooding along the banks. ProPublica's Lisa Song and I looked at videos of those models, and what we saw is that levees can make flooding worse along the river. Lisa's back now to talk about a better way of preventing flooding. Hey, Lisa. Hi. So, Lisa... How do we fix this problem so that communities aren't building higher and higher levees and are preventing floods?
6: One of the solutions we looked at is called a setback levy. When communities decide that they're going to take down the levee that they have right next to the river, and they're going to rebuild the levee further back on the floodplain. So basically, there's now a whole patch of land right next to the river that is unprotected by a levee. And the idea is you don't let people live there. And you allow that land to just be open land, so the next time it floods, the water has somewhere to go.
0: So I'm looking at the video now where the water is now spilling out onto this floodplain, but it's not hitting the houses.
6: Yes, that's the idea, is once you build a setback levee, you can have the same amount of water coming down the river as you had in a past flood, But now that water level will be lowered overall. And we see these kinds of setback levies in the Netherlands quite often. But we only have a few examples of setback levies in the U.S. They're a type of solution we're just starting to implement.
0: Oh, but how's that going to happen in America? People love living (laughs) by the river.
6: Yeah, so these kinds of projects in the U.S. only work when a community volunteers to have a setback levy. Lisa,
0: thank you so much for coming in and explaining this to me. Thank you. Making room for the river sounds nice, but how exactly does that work if your town is already built right on top of the river? To find out, we're going to a place where they've been struggling with the Mississippi since, well, Mark Twain's day.
3: Okay, so they have Mark Twain coffee mugs, tea towels, ornaments, playing cards. And, like, a Mark Twain (laughs) bobblehead.
0: This is Hannibal, Missouri, Mark Twain's hometown.
3: Yeah, they literally have a book called Mark Twain for cat lovers, and then they have Mark Twain for dog lovers.
0: It's just across the water from Sny Levy, where farmer Dan Lundberg lives and Nancy Guyton. She grew up here, and now she lives about 40 miles away. Reveal reporters Catherine Miskowski and Patrick Michaels visited Hannibal this spring.
3: The town has a kind of Twain theme park feel.
1: We're near the river in downtown Hannibal to meet the former mayor, John Lane. So good to meet you, finally. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well that remains to be seen. <laughs> so far, so good. Anyway, thanks All for meeting right. us. All
3: right. You can probably already tell John's a bit of a character. He gets right down to poking holes in the Mark Twain machine.
4: That's fake. It's not a steam whistle. What is it? It's a sound effect. <laughs> You're kidding. This must be the dinner cruise that is leaving right now.
1: And yes, that's the Mark Twain riverboat we're looking at.
3: Between us and that boat is a giant levee, 34 feet high, built of earth and concrete. The levee protects the historic downtown. John raised money from local businesses to help the Army Corps pay for this levee. It was finished in June 1993. A month later, the big flood hit.
1: It sounds like you came in just under the wire, basically. Yeah, of course, we didn't know that.
4: No one said, you know, there's an epic, all-time record flood coming, and we got to be ready for
1: it. The levee stood up to the flood, and Mark Twain's boyhood home and the rest of downtown were saved.
3: But now we're going to tell you what happened to the other part of town, the south side, that wasn't protected by the Twain legacy or the flood wall. And to do that, we meet up
4: with John S. Hark from the Hannibal Marion County Emergency Management Director.
3: For almost 50 years, John S. Hark has been the guy who makes sure people in Hannibal stay safe in a flood. He survived his first one when he was just a few weeks old.
4: We had a major flood and our house was flooded.
1: The family moved, but a year later, another flood took that house too. His father had had enough.
4: He said, you know, it got me once. I tried to, to move and do better. It got me the second time. And I decided it'd never get us again.
1: So John grew up with this idea. You can't fight the river forever. But every time it flooded down here, John would scramble to get people out.
4: We would come in in boats to try to get them to evacuate and leave. And, One gentleman in particular, I can remember doing my best to talk to him to come out, and he wouldn't do it. He wasn't going to do it.
1: You can understand why he didn't want to give up on his neighborhood. When you look at black and white photos, you can see that it was a bustling place, with department stores, bars, and an antique shop. But it was always at the mercy of the river, because this is the low-lying part of town.
3: Eventually, the government came up with an escape plan. It bought those properties and tore down the houses, People who lived here sold their homes to the government and moved away. It was a calculated retreat from the river. Now the water would have somewhere to go.
4: I can sympathize with those that didn't want to go or didn't want to sell, but I can see and fully understand why they did. It was a necessary evil, I guess you could say.
1: A necessary evil because the town and the Army Corps had decided only to protect the historic downtown.
3: People here were left outside, Today, they're all gone. It was really weird. Yeah.
1: It's just flat grass everywhere. Just, I mean, you wouldn't know there was anything here except that it's a rectangle with power lines across it. Totally, it's a lost neighborhood. This spot that was deliberately left outside the city's flood wall, it illustrates something else we've seen again and again up and down the Mississippi. In the cold calculus of flood management, it's the most valuable properties that get the best protection. Hannibal and the Corps sacrificed a low-income neighborhood to the river while protecting the tourist business downtown.
3: But the thing is, scientists would say this is smart flood policy. Get out of the river's way. Give the water somewhere to go.
4: No levee is ever going to be guaranteed to last and hold back that river forever.
1: Of course, that's exactly what the Snye Levy District across the river is trying to do. Hold back the water forever. For Dan Lundberg and the other commissioners, it's a point of pride, a family legacy, to defend this farmland from one generation to the next.
3: But over on the other side of the river, Nancy Guyton's also thinking about the legacy she'll leave for her children and grandchildren.
1: I think that's one reason everyone's so dug in here. They're fighting about what their piece of land will look like 50 or 100 years from now. Nancy has a bumper sticker that says, Don't make us another Bird's Point. Bird's Point is the floodway we told you about earlier, where the town of Pinhook was sacrificed to protect other towns and farms along the river. I went to see Nancy again in August. She said she knows she's made enemies behind the sny, some who used to be friends.
5: Some of them are taking it personally that I'm involved in this. And I don't know why. I think it's because I had friends in the SNI. And I think another thing is I don't give up. If I quit, you'll see my name in the obituaries. You know, I mean, it's that simple.
3: We've heard how people with more money and power get better flood protection and how people with less are often left on the front lines to face the river. We still wondered, what does Dan think about this?
1: So late in the season, I went back to the SNI to ask Dan. So the corn looks pretty different from when we were out here last. Is it getting close to harvest? Well, we're probably a month off yet. I really just had one question left for Dan. Is what's happening here fair for everyone who lives on the river? When it comes to flood protection, you get what you pay for, or you get what you can afford to pay. And There's some communities that don't have a lot of money for flood protection. Is that the fair way to do things across the river? Uh, I would say yes. I mean,
2: uh, I don't know exactly how to answer that, but I mean, from my side of it, yes. I've been there where, where we had to fight for everything that we got. Things weren't always as good as they are right now. Uh, land values have gone way up, and basically is what we're trying to do is hold on to those land values. And like I said, I've worked my whole life to keep this river out of here. So I guess that's where I'm coming from.
0: Our story was from Reveal's Patrick Michaels and Catherine Miskowski. For more on our investigation into the nation's levees with ProPublica, go to revealnews.org. Catherine Miskowski was our lead producer this week. Taki Telenitis edited our show. Thanks to the whole amazing team at ProPublica. Lisa Song, Al Shaw, Alexandra Zayas, Katie Campbell, Ranjini Chakobroti, as well as Reveal's editor-in-chief, Amy Pyle. Lori Stern reported in Minneapolis, and Phoebe Petrovic researched here in Emeryville. Special thanks to the State Historical Society of Missouri and to Todd Lawrence and Elaine Lawless for sounds from their documentary, Taking Pinhook, their book, When They Blew the Levy, came out this summer. Our production manager is Mwende Anahosa. Our sound design team is the Dynamic Duo. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, yo Aruda. They had help this week from Catherine Raymond. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Ledson, and remember, there is always more to the story.